Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Grace. Thanks for being a part of this worship experience together. We come today in this uh, study, The Pursuit of Happiness, to a very interesting statement from Jesus. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 5. So let's start right there. Jesus said right here, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. I wonder how you feel about that statement. Bobby Knight was a legendary basketball coach, Hall of Fame coach, and he said to this statement, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Bobby Knight said, well, the meek may very well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. Now, I think many people today have a Bobby Knight view of meekness. I mean, what about you? What comes to your mind when you hear this word? Do you envision someone who's kind of mousy and weak, hardly can look you in the eye, always deferring to others, never has an opinion, insecure, indecisive, passive? And if someone calls you meek, wow, you're a meek person. I mean, do you take, take that as a compliment or an insult? Kind of hard to know, isn't it? Because feelings about this word meek are pretty strong. I think most people have a Bobby Knight view of meekness. Now, since definitions are important, I think we need to look at how popular dictionaries define the word meekness. I did some research this week, just looking online, Googling the word meek or meekness, and, and here's one definition that came up. One source defined it as quiet, gentle, and easily imposed on, submissive, okay? And I checked another source, dictionary.com had a slightly different take on it, but the same vibe. Dictionary.com described meekness as docile, overly compliant, spiritless. Spiritless? I mean, I think you'll agree these are not complimentary words. If that's what meekness is about, I don't need any of that, right? That is not what I want to be. Winston Churchill, the great wartime prime minister of Great Britain, uh, was talking to Parliament one day, speaking to Parliament, and he began to talk about uh, Clement Ackley, who was the leader of the opposing party. And these, these two leaders were always verbally sparring with each other and kind of critiquing one another's policies and, and actions. And on this particular occasion, Churchill said, we all know that Mr. Ackley is a very humble man. Everybody was shocked. Oh, I can't believe he's complimenting his opponent. And then in typical Churchillian fashion, he said, but of course, we all know he has much about which to be humble, okay? He's a very humble man, but he has much about which to be humble. Now, let's face it. If meekness means to be servile, mousy, indecisive, spineless, we'll all agree. We don't want anything to do with that because those are not qualities we respect or desire. 
So if the Bobby Knight view is correct, I think we want to avoid meekness like the plague. But thankfully, that's not what the Bible means by meekness. In fact, uh, biblically speaking, not only is meekness not weakness, but it's pretty much the diametrical opposite of weakness. What I'm saying to you today, all deference to Bobby Knight, good basketball coach, but a poor theologian, I'm saying to you that a meek person can not only get rebounds, but they can lead the league in rebounds. Because as the Bible uses this word, it's talking about someone who's strong, full of spirit and vigor, but they have their strength under control. The word was commonly used of a horse. Horse is obviously a strong animal, rippling muscles, powerful, but the horse has been broken and is now under the guidance and direction of the rider. If any of you read the book or saw the movie Seabiscuit, you kind of have a visual of this. Seabiscuit, by all accounts, was a very sort of strong-willed, even rebellious thoroughbred when he was very young. But once he had been properly broken and trained and responded to the bit in his mouth, he was able to achieve impressive victories. So that's a picture of what meekness is about. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, he's speaking of those people, those women, those men, those young people who have yielded their strong self-will to the authority of God in their daily lives. It's not enough, it's not enough, as we've seen the last two weeks, just to admit and acknowledge your spiritual poverty and then to even mourn for that. You see, these Beatitudes build on each other logically. The next logical step is then to humbly, once you've admitted all that, to humbly submit your life to the daily guidance of the Holy Spirit. So a meek person is one who is sensitive to the Holy Spirit's promptings. They're not so much shaped and guided by the opinions of the world, the spirit of the world, or what others might think. They're living for an audience of one. And their whole worldview, their values, their actions, their behavior is all shaped by the word of God. They have a humble submission to God regardless of what others are thinking, regardless of what others are doing. And I will assure you, dear friends, that requires strength. Now, I know some people who are submissive to God when they're in trouble or when life is scary or hard. For 16 years, my, uh, our family had a dog named Buddy. Oh, how we loved Buddy. Buddy was an Australian shepherd, and he was our only dog that we've ever had, and by the grace of the living God, I hope the only dog we'll ever have. Just saying. Just saying, Okay. Buddy was wonderful. We doted on Buddy. We loved Buddy. Buddy was the object of so much affection in our home. But can I tell you, Buddy was a very strong-willed puppy. 
I mean, he had a mind of his own. If he didn't want to sit, he wouldn't sit. If he didn't want to heal, he wouldn't heal. He would not follow directions at times. And sometimes he would get into moods that were just downright cantankerous and rebellious. But there was one time, one time in Buddy's life when he always was meek. Whenever there was a storm going on outside, he was afraid of lightning and thunder. And so whether, whenever the thunder was booming, Buddy would sure enough come over and humbly sit at our feet, snuggle up close. And I want to tell you folks, during those moments, Buddy was a model canine. I mean, he, was, he was just perfect until the storm subsided. And then he went back to being his normal self. Now, I know some people like that, don't you? Boy, they're proud, they're rebellious, until they get in trouble, until the storm is raging in their lives, and they go, oh God, oh God, if you just get me through this, I will be humble and meek. Always. I'll be an amazing Christian. I'll be the best disciple you've ever had, and God is gracious and patient, but when the storm's over, ah, they go right back to the same proud, rebellious person and forget God altogether. See, that, that's, just, that's not true meekness. The meekness God is looking for is not here today and gone tomorrow. God's looking for meekness, and that's what all these Beatitudes are pretty much about, is a disposition that our character would demonstrate this. And folks, it's gonna come out in gentleness and sensitivity. In fact, those are words that are often used, like words like humble and gentle are often used synonymously in Scripture with meekness, depending on the translation you're using. So think about it. It's kind of oxymoronic in a way. Think, think about that. A strong husband, for instance, is one who has his strength harnessed, and he deals with gentleness and sensitivity and compassion with his wife and family. A, a meek wife is one who has all these qualities, intelligence and strength, but deals with sensitivity, kindness, gentleness with her husband and family. That is a meek person. Now, I thought this week, Okay, what are some examples? Because examples, you know, help us to understand things. And, and the first example, of course, would be Jesus, our Lord himself. In Matthew 11, Jesus is described as meek and lowly in heart. Meek and lowly. And as I said, depending on your translation, that Greek word will be translated as gentle or humble or something like that. Okay? So Jesus was meek. But long before Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission, there lived a man named Moses. And Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says of this great leader, Moses, now Moses was a very humble man. Get this part. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now that's the NIV. King James translates that. Moses was a very meek man, the meekest of anyone else on earth. So Moses is this meek man, and yet, if you know anything about Moses, my goodness, 
You talk about a fire plug. You talk about a courageous, decisive leader who could stand in the face of Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Oxymoronic almost, strong and courageous, and yet meek and gentle. Why? Because he was under the authority of God. And God put him in charge of leading two million Israelite people. And so in in today's passage, Jesus promised that the meek will inherit the earth. Now, folks, folks, listen, if I were teaching a self-help seminar, if I was making no reference to the Bible whatsoever and just talking according to human values as they exist in the culture, being totally secular about it, here's how I would lead a seminar on leadership. I'd say the meek inherit the earth. Ditch that. I'll tell you who's going to inherit the earth. I'll tell you who's going to get ahead and be put in charge. The self-promoting. That's who's going to get in charge of things. The ego-driven. The ones who are pompous and proud and probably honestly think a little more highly of themselves than they ought to. That's going to be who gets ahead in this world. But Jesus says, no, we're going to flip this thing. In my kingdom, listen, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to flip things on their head. It's the humble person, the person who has strength under the control that's going to inherit the leadership of the earth. Perhaps you've heard the name Jim Collins, one of the most respected leadership writers and gurus of the past generation taught at Stanford for many years, had a huge research team as he developed these classic books like Good to Great and many others, Made to Last, all kinds of books. And and here's what they found in their research. Jim Collins, not a Christian that I'm aware, Jim Collins studying with his massive team the top CEOs, the Fortune 500 leaders in the Western world. These are the CEOs and presidents, the people, the men and women who led corporations to greatness. And they study the qualities in the lives of these individuals. Do you know what the quality was? The number one quality In leaders that they called level five leaders, those are the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the leaders that lasted, who didn't just word a flash in the pan, anybody can do that. The leaders who led their organizations to greatness, you know what the number one quality was? Humility. Humility. What Jesus called meekness. And biblically, that's what we see in the great men and women in the Bible. David, for instance, was a a meek man. Saul was trying to kill him because he knew David was number one for the throne, in line for the throne. And as providence would have it, one day Saul came into the very cave where David was hiding out from Saul and his soldiers. And David's men said, we got him now. We're going to kill this guy. Now's your chance, David. Kill this guy and take over the throne. God has put him in your hands. David was meek. He explained, no, I, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. That's not mine to do. I'm under the control of a higher power, not just human values. And so David did 
come up and cut off, while Saul was sleeping, cut off the edge of his robe. And then when Saul had finished his nap and was way down in the valley, David stood at the mouth of the cave and called out, oh, Saul, is there something missing from your robe? And Saul realized that David had spared his life out of meekness. He could have inflicted pain. He could have killed the man. But in meekness, under the control of God, he spared him. And Saul sheepishly called off the manhunt, at least for a while. In the course of the next few months, Saul was killed in battle, and David inherited the throne of Israel for 40 years. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, if not now, in God's timing, if not here, in eternity. So let's get very practical here. How would you know? I believe I'm speaking to thousands of people today through the internet and through our various campuses, people who will listen to this online, thousands of you who say, look, I want to follow Jesus. So if he says meekness is a good thing, that's what I'm all about. I want to be a meek person. But what are some indicators that that might be true of you? How would you know? How would you measure? How would you measure the meekness quotient in your life? There are probably many, but in the balance of our time, I want to mention just two that I believe are critical, that are absolutely important in the life of a meek person, but I want to warn you, I hope you've had your coffee. I hope your seatbelt is buckled because there's going to be turbulence ahead. These are not easy to embrace. The first one I will mention is this. You will not spend. Are you a meek person? Do you want to be? This is going to be one of the indicators. You will not spend too much time on image management. Wow. Why? Because you know that whatever people are thinking and saying about you is probably better than the actual truth. Yeah. So you kind of drop your defensiveness. Because you've come to realize, <laughs> there's not much worth defending in me after all. I mean, honestly, it, you just don't pay too much attention anymore to what people say. I mean, what are they really going to do to you? What are they going to do to your reputation? You've already acknowledged to God that you're spiritually bankrupt, completely broke. I've got absolutely nothing I'm bringing to this party, God. Nothing. And when a person has acknowledged that, I mean, what are people going to say to you that is worse or say about you that is worse than what you've already freely acknowledged to God? So why sweat it? <laughs> and quite frankly... This is pretty liberating. It's pretty liberating. It kind of sets you free. You're just kind of done with image management. I, I, I won't plague you with this book throughout the series, I promise. But I do want to read you one brief little section from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he put it like this. He said, when a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. What a line. 
Nobody can say anything about you that is too bad. You need not worry about what men say or do. You know you deserve it all and more. Once again, therefore, I would define meekness like this. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That, it seems to me, is its essential quality. Again, I told you this is hard to embrace. I think this is the exact antithesis of the spirit of our age, don't you? I mean, let's face it, on social media and in many other avenues, people pretty much spend their lives in a paranoid state trying to manage their image and carefully craft it so others will think of them a certain way. But the truly meek person kind of given up on that. You just don't care. Why? Because you're, you're living for an audience of one. And you know that he knows the score, and he and only he can ultimately settle the score. He knows what really matters. Okay. So I think that is true. That's a quality in in people who are really walking in meekness. But I'm gonna mention one more. And and, and the second indicator that meekness is becoming a disposition, a characteristic in your character, is you will put aside any efforts to get revenge or even the score. One popular bumper sticker reads, get revenge. Live long enough to be a problem to your children. I laugh too. That is hilarious. But hear me, nothing is more opposite to the spirit of meekness than getting revenge and trying to make somebody else pay. A meek person has learned to leave that to God. Getting revenge Getting vengeance, settling the score is God's business. As Paul says in Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Then he says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a really meek person. You say, but time out. Come on, how can anyone live that way? Isn't it our nature to want to get revenge? Oh, I agree. I agree. I I think we want to get revenge. I I know I do. In my fallen, broken, sinful nature, I want revenge, baby. I want to make people pay. You know what? I think that's why we love superhero movies. All the latest ones that were some great superhero is wreaking vengeance and all this on certain enemies. And I think that's why an older generation, I think that's why we love Clint Eastwood and Rambo. Yeah. Yeah. We just want to see Clint walk in and just kill a bunch of people. Because that's what we feel like doing. Amen? Come on. 
Moment of honesty here. That's what we feel like doing. But I know if I go do what Clint is doing, I'm going to get put in prison. So I pay my money and I watch Clint wreak vengeance. Yeah. I watch Rambo come in and shoot them up and make them pay because that's what I want to do to my enemies. And so I live vicariously through Rambo. I think that's what we do. But the truly meek person is not seeking revenge because she is humbly trusting that God can take care of all that just fine. Now, let me make a huge and important caveat here. Caveat, caveat, that does not mean it's wrong to use the court system to bring lawsuits, when often that is the only way we can bring justice to bear in this world, legally. That is totally legit. But I'm talking about taking justice into your own hands. I'm talking about you, when you've had a slight or an insult or some personal injury, you become judge and jury and you seek revenge for some personal insult. So what do you do? You say, come on, pastor, let's get real here. You're always talking about getting real. What do you do when someone's hurt me? I had people in the lobby after the first service come up and tell stories about how they've been hurt, and I listen with empathy because I've been there. There's always gonna be personal hurts and slander and people saying bad things about you, and I hear these stories with genuine mercy and empathy. I felt that pain. At my best, I won't tell you what I've done at my worst, okay, but at my best, I've gone to my knees many, many times when I wanted personal revenge, and I tell you the truth, I have prayed this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter, the apostle Peter says there, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right, we've all been there, haven't we? Did what is right. You're just doing your job. You're just being a solid citizen. You're just going about, you're just living your life. When you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure that? This finds favor with God, Peter says. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Get this part now. And while being reviled, he went Rambo on him. No. This is shocking now. This is counterculture. You sure you got the stomach for this? While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. What did he do? And many times I found myself on my knees when humanly I just wanted to go Rambo. I wanted to go Rambo on these idiots who've hurt me. And on my knees, I prayed this prayer. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Oh. God, you know the score. You know the truth here. 
you know, every detail of this situation. And I'm gonna be like Jesus, by your grace, I'm gonna entrust myself to you and not take vengeance into my own hands. God, I wanna hurt them, but you've told me that's your business. And so I'm gonna keep entrusting myself to you because you are ultimately the only one who can really settle the score. Again, a person who can do that is a truly meek person. That's one of the characteristics. That is strength under control. You could inflict pain on someone's life, but you resist that urge. Instead, you put it in God's hands knowing that the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, but oh, do they grind exceedingly fine. God doesn't miss a thing. Now, I suppose if anyone that I know of would have ever been justified in getting even or lashing back, it might have been that pastor, Jonathan Edwards. He pastored actually not too far from here in two places, Northampton, Massachusetts, and then Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Had a great ministry. God actually brought wonderful revival under his ministry, particularly in Northampton. But here's what happened in his life. After being there for 20-something years, amazing church, very large for its time in Northampton, in December of 1748, Jonathan Edwards, the pastor, told a man that he must be born again and show signs, signs in his lifestyle of a relationship with God before he could participate in the Lord's Supper at the church. Now, to us, it's like a no-brainer. I mean, but for the church in his time, that was revolutionary. All you had to do was be baptized as an infant. That's all you had to, and you were available for the Lord's Supper. Well, Edward's decision to keep the man from communion set in motion a tsunami of conflict that just went on and on. The man's family got involved. Friends of the man's family members began to show their hostility. Practically the whole town was in an uproar. All of Northampton, Massachusetts seemed to want to vilify this humble pastor, Jonathan Edwards. Now, mind you, Edwards had not embezzled any money from the church. Edwards had not committed adultery. Edwards has not gotten drunk or made a public spectacle of himself. Edwards had not slandered anyone. Edwards had not become lazy as a pastor, nor had he taught any unbiblical doctrines. This humble pastor simply dared to suggest that maybe, just maybe, one should have a saving relationship with Jesus if they were gonna participate in the Lord's Supper. That's it. And it caused the church to explode in conflict. As the pressure continued to mount, Edwards wrote to a friend. I'll read you a little section of the letter. Joseph Bellamy was the friend. I need God's counsel in every step I take and every word I speak. As all that I do and say is watched by the multitude around me with the utmost strictness and with eyes of great uncharitableness and severity. And let me do or say what I will. My words and actions are represented in dark colors. Has that ever been, you ever been in a place like that where it didn't matter what you did, it, it was given the worst possible interpretation? People just assume the worst of you. He said, they seem to think, 
that it greatly concerns them to blacken me and represent me in odious colors to the world to justify their own conflict. They seem to be sensible that now their character can't stand unless it be on the ruin of mine. And then he asked for the man's prayers. I therefore desire, dear sir, your fervent prayers to God. If he be for me, who can be against me? If he be with me, I need not fear 10,000s of the people, but I know myself unworthy of his presence and help, yet would humbly trust in his infinite grace and all sufficiency. Well, the conflict went on. It went on for over a year and a half. And finally, on June the 22nd, 1950, Edwards was dismissed. He was fired from his church where he had faithfully served. He was vilified in the town. You know what? It got so mean, they wouldn't even let his cow graze on the public pasture lands. And in spite of all that, he refused to seek revenge. One godly member of the church who saw it for what it was and was sympathetic with Edwards said this about him. That faithful witness, referring to Edwards, received the shock that he was fired, unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. Oh, oh, I like that line. A man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. That's a meek person. Where is your security today? Where is your significance? Is it in the opinions of others? Is it in your status, your position, your paycheck, your prestige in this world? All that is sinking sand, folks. But when your happiness is wrapped up in your relationship with Jesus Christ, your happiness is beyond the reach of your enemies. And when that is true of you or me, we won't be trying to manage our image so much and we won't be seeking revenge because our strength is under his control and he has a much grander purpose for us than that. Father, I ask that as we continue to look to you, I ask that you would help us as a people, every one of us, because I sense in your people right now a yearning, a heart that says, yes, yes, that's what I want. But it seems almost out of reach. It seems so counterculture. How could we possibly live that way? It's only by your grace, your spirit, and the guidance of your word that we could even dare to live that way. Help us to have that kind of confidence in you. That every day we would humbly submit our lives and that meekness would be the true character and disposition of our hearts. And may you receive glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.